3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll be reading today verses 10 through 17. Remember now, as uh, we approach this particular passage, Paul is still addressing the problem of uh, division, contention, and uh, jealousy within the church. Here's what the Word of God says. According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Another's building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. But he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. May God add his rich blessing to his holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Let's ask for his help to understand. The Father in heaven this morning, we understand that what we have sung confirms a principle which is that your word will not be confirmed and established and rooted in our heart as true until we learn to fear you. Work in us that fear right now, that we would remember that we stand in your holy presence, and that we are in fact together collectively the temple of God in which you dwell. And may that truth bring sobriety to our minds and hearts and thoughts. And that we would stand before you in reference and on fear. And as we have that disposition and attitude of heart, we pray that your Holy Spirit would unfold these words to, give, to grant us light and truth. And that we may know you. And that we may know the way that pleases you. And then walk in that. Hear us for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you this morning, are familiar with that old nursery tale of the three little pigs. You remember the story, right? The four, uh, the three little pigs who had grown up to the brink of adulthood. The mother addressed them before she sent them off and gave them this valuable lesson. She said, whatever you do, do it the best that you can, because that's the way you get along in this world. Do it the best that you can. And so you know the story, the three little pigs went out into the big bad world, and they all built their own houses. One little pig bought, or rather built a house of sticks, another built a house of straw, and another built a house of bricks and mortar. And to make that short story even shorter, you remember what happened. The big bad wolf came along and he huffed and he puffed and he blew down the house of straw. And then next he went to the little pig's house. He built his house out of sticks. And he threatened and he warned and finally he huffed and he puffed and he blew the house down. 
And depending on how the story goes, he either went inside and consumed the little pig, or the little pig uh, ran and escaped uh, the wrath of the wolf before he was consumed. But finally, uh, the wolf, as you remember, went to the house of the other little pig who had built his house out of bricks and mortar, and he threatened, and he warmed, and he huffed, and he puffed, time after time after time, only to find that that house would not fall. And so finally he got the bright idea of scaling the house and going down the chimney, and you remember that he boiled to death in hot water. But what's the issue, the principle that we are to remember from that story, according to the writer of the nursery rhyme, is the moral of the story as mediated by the mother pig. The way to get along in this world is to do the best you can. Now that simple moralistic lesson connects to our passage in this way. The Apostle Paul addresses the the church in Corinth, which is divided, uh, which is experiencing contention and jealousy, uh, that is fragmented and divided up into uh, camps of people who follow Paul and Apollos and Cephas and the Jesus camp. And as they have these divisions and rivalries and they attempt to build up their own respective groups within the church and are consumed with their own team and their own leaders, Paul addresses that church and he says, you better be careful how you build. In a sense, it's the same uh, moralistic lesson, but this time it's from God. It's divine. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's an eternal principle. The way to get along, not in this life, but in eternity is to build now in such a way that the rewards reaped will be eternal. And so he addresses the the teachers primarily here in the church who are under the uh, influence of the church members who are attempting to persuade those leaders uh, to follow worldly principles of success in order to attract more people to their team. Let's watch how Paul unfolds this point. And the central principle of our passage is summarized in that last sentence of verse 10 when he says, But each man must be careful how he builds. That's the theme. That's the melody line of our passage. Be careful how you build. And the first reason the Apostle Paul gives for why leaders and churches are to be careful how they build is because the church is a valuable institution. We're to be careful as we build and how we build because the church is a valuable institution as first of all reflected in Paul's rejoicing in his privilege to serve in it. In verse 10 he says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. The Apostle Paul reflects on his own apostolic calling and his own call to be a minister of the word. And within the reflection upon that call, we see something that illustrates the value of the truth. Here Paul says, according to grace I was given this calling. And this is not his call to salvation, this is a call to apostleship. And as you scan through Paul's letters, you'll find uh, that this theme emerges quite often. Romans chapter 15, you don't have to turn there, but you can listen to how Paul summarizes his gratitude there. He says, I have written very boldly to you on some account so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Later on, 1 Corinthians 15, he magnifies his call and the privilege of ministering the word again. He says, by the grace of God I am what I am. 
and His grace toward me did not prove vain. I labored more than they all. Galatians 2.9, he again reflects on his call and he points out that the pillars of the church, John and Cephas and James, recognized the grace of God given to him to be, a, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. But you see, it's that grace, that, that grace that God extended to him in calling him to be an apostle to the Gentiles uh, that he rejoices in. And the whole reason why he's rejoicing, obviously, in this grace and this privilege is because God has granted him the opportunity to serve in the institution of the church. And there's no reason to magnify the grace of God in that connection unless the church is a valuable institution. Paul expounds upon this calling, not just in terms of its grace, but in terms of its capacity and function. He points out the fact that he is the master builder. The term was used in ancient Greek to refer to Uh, The building contractor, if you will. The guy who was the head of the project, who was not necessarily the one who did the day-by-day work, but the one who oversaw all of the work. Who secured the subcontractors to do the plumbing and the electricity and to build the walls and the various aspects of putting a building together. Paul refers to himself as that kind of a guy who was an overseer of the project. And of course, a part of his responsibility, he says here, was to lay the foundation. But here he says something's extremely important in terms of his own calling, which again reflects the value of the church. He says his job was to lay the foundation, and then he goes on in verse 11 to say that foundation is Jesus Christ. Again, we see another window into the value of the church, though. He says that the value of the church is expressed and illustrated in this truth that it has a foundation which is unique to all of the buildings in this world. It's Jesus Christ who is the foundation. And the reason why Jesus Christ is the foundation is because Jesus Christ is the one through whom people gain access to this church. Jesus Christ is the one who mediates covenant grace to make us a part of this building, which Paul is going to speak about in a moment. Because that is how people gain access and become part of this church, Paul proclaims Christ. All throughout this epistle again, and other places, you will see Paul describe his calling which is about preaching Jesus Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, I delivered to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, He was raised to the third day according to the Scriptures. The fact that Paul had always been uh, loyal to this truth and have pursued this truth and applied this truth in his ministry is illustrated for us in Acts chapter 18, verse 5, when uh, we are told what Paul did when he first came to Corinth. He said he devoted himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now you see here that this illustrates of the uniqueness and the value of this building, that Christ is the centerpiece of this institution. And we see something very important here in terms of how we are to regard our calling 
as a church. And that is to magnify the centrality of Jesus Christ. There is nothing else which stabilizes the church and nourishes it, makes it healthy, than Jesus Christ. You know, it's our responsibility to grasp hold of that principle rather than uh, using what Paul will refer to in a moment as wood, hay, straw, and stubble. The responsibility of the church is to get a focus for its ministry and its proclamation, and that focus is to be Jesus Christ. Not gimmicks, not media stunts that gain the attention of people around us. But the proclamation of Christ. So Paul here is reflecting upon his calling and upon the function of his calling within this valuable institution, this church, which is to lay Christ as the foundation. Then he goes on to magnify the value of the church by describing what it is. The nature of this building is that it's a holy dwelling place of God. You see, that's sort of reflected already in uh, Paul uh, describing this church as having a foundation. Uh, then he talks about it having uh, walls. Finally, you get what Paul is after in this metaphor. When you come to verse 16, he says, Don't you know that you are a temple of God? What does he mean by that? Well, obviously, uh, Paul is now using a metaphor to describe the heart of the theme of the covenant throughout Scriptures, that God would be a God to His people. If you go back to God's calling of Abraham, you'll see this theme of urge uh, repeatedly, that, that God would be to Abraham and to his seed a God, and they would be to him a people. And what that meant is finally illustrated at the end of the book of chapter, uh, rather Exodus, the very last chapter, the very last paragraph, you find God of filling the tabernacle with His presence. And there you have the heart of the covenant illustrated that God would dwell among His people. That's what it meant for Him to be their God. That's what it meant for them to be His people, that He would dwell in the midst of them. That He would sanctify them by the power of His presence. Uh, He would hold this community together. As you come into the New Testament, you see that theme picked up again. But now we see that the principle and the theme is not fulfilled in a more grand physical temple, but in a body. That is Christ. Now Paul enlarges upon that theme, that central issue of the covenant, and says, here's what it means to be God's people is that you now are a temple. Each and every member of the congregation is a stone within that temple. And as God erects that temple, He is fashioning and shaping it into a perfect place for His presence. You see that in verse 17. In His admonition, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. And the temple is holy, of course, because as Paul says in verse 16, the Spirit of God dwells among you. It's hard for us sometimes to imagine the great value of the church. I think it's hard sometimes even more for us. I use this illustration quite often, but as you look around this room, 
it doesn't feel all that spectacular. Linoleum floors, squeaky metal chairs, a TV, ketchup and mustard on a, a hamburger, a school cafeteria, an adored service. It's hard to grasp the value sometimes because the value is not in the things that are seen. The value is located in the things that are unseen and invisible. The fact of the matter is that the value is located in the fact that within the, uh, the collectiveness of this group, the value is located in the fact that each of us now as adopted sons of God are the bricks and mortar which form the holy dwelling place of God, the value of it is the person who fills us, which is the Holy Spirit who mediates the grace of Christ to us. You know, the psalmist uh, talks about in Psalm 48, the great wonder of the temple of God. He calls upon the people of God to take a good look at the temple Saying, in our God's city, we have seen what we before were told, that God, who is the Lord of hosts, will ever hit the hold. He calls upon us to walk around that tower, to count her towers, to mark her bulwarks well, to consider her palaces. Because there was something mysteriously awesome and wonderful about the temple which consisted not in what the eye could see, but what the heart could embrace by faith. That the temple of God is valuable. That the people of God now, as that's transformed into the New Testament, say it's the people of God. It's not a physical dwelling place. It is the totality of the collective parts and God dwelling within it that makes the church what it is. If we learn anything from the initial part of Paul's admonition here to the church to be careful how we build because of the value of the institution we are called this morning by God to value our place in the church. We're called by God to value our place in the church. This passage calls upon you this morning to reevaluate your commitment to the church and to realize how significant and how important it is that you are a part. It's distressing to see how people who uh, sometimes have grown up in the church have not regarded its value. It's as if uh, being a part of the church has become a rather normal or boring routine. Where the privileges of coming to church and to worshiping with God's people, the privileges of being catechized and instructed in the church, the privileges of growing up under the ministry of the means of grace, somehow after time just becomes normal and boring and seemingly insignificant. And too often people who grow up within the walls of the church go outside of the walls to find something that's more spectacular. And so if... It just becomes all too predictable. The criticisms begin to justify reasons for leaving it. There weren't enough 
young people and young youth activities, or the music was old-fashioned and out of date, or the pastor was dry and intellectual. The sermons just weren't stimulating anymore. Those are all used as justifications for going out into the world and finding another way. Well, I hope what we see here this morning, whether you have grown up within the walls of the church or whether you're new to the church, the church is a valuable institution. In fact, it's so valuable that it's calling upon you to reevaluate and reinforce your commitment to this institution because it's utterly unique. There's nothing like it under the sun. There's no place where you can go in this world and be fitted together with other people to become the dwelling place of God through the Holy Spirit. Because that's the case, you are called this morning to regard, with a high regard, the value of the church. And so now we come secondly to Paul's admonition to be careful how we build. And that admonition now revolves around the fact that God has prescribed certain ways in which the church is to build upon this foundation. So it is pieced together as a holy dwelling place of God through the Holy Spirit. And first of all, we look at that word there again. Be careful. It means that we're to take responsibility for how something happens. This is particularly addressed to the ministers. Some study Bibles and some commentators look at this passage and they try to apply it to uh, all of God's people, arguing that... uh, are based upon a mistranslation of Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, that you're all ministers of God, which is completely an incorrect translation. God has instituted a ministry, and He raises up men to proclaim the Word who are ministers, and that's who Paul addresses here. People who have received the divine calling through Jesus Christ to proclaim His Word. And Paul emphatically and clearly isolates those people, and he addresses them here, those very people who are being pressured to alter their message and to shape it in a certain certain way, that it will be appealing and attractive to people who aren't yet a part of their team. Whose partisan spirit is manifested and reflected in innovation. Changing the message and modifying it so that it might be attractive to different groups of people. And the Apostle Paul says to them, you better be careful how you build. Ministry is to be conducted in one way and one way only. And that is the way that is prescribed here in God's Word. And so he goes on in verse 12 to talk about that. That divine standard. He says, if any man builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, and stubble... Paul marks out six different kinds of building materials here. And I want to deal with the last three first. That that is combined now, those last three, into a category of corrupt and useless building materials. I believe that Paul here, when he refers to these three kinds of materials, is obviously dealing uh, with false doctrine. It's very clear within the context here that Paul has emphasized emphatically over and again uh, the centrality of of Christ uh, crucified and resurrected over against uh, the kind of preaching which adds to it and uh, flavors the proclamation of the word with human insights and opinions and uh, philosophy and wisdom. But I believe it expands beyond that to include not just the doctrines themselves, but the kinds of people who are attracted to them, who are then used to build up the people. 
And I believe that that's probably the case, no doubt the case, because, as I've already alluded to it, in other passages in the New Testament where the church is described as a temple in Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 2, that the temple is constructed of human beings. So I think here, as the Apostle Paul talks about wood, hay, and straw, he's talking about the doctrines and the practices and then the kinds of people who are attracted to that to be used to build up and to shape this building. And what Paul is saying here is that you don't sacrifice truth in order to have a following so that you can have a big church. That's what he's saying. You have to ask yourself, people of God, this morning, what is the motivation that stands behind such a procedure? Is it truly a a desire of being consumed with the glory of God, so consumed with God's glory that we will at all costs build a church that is enormous, that has a large physical structure, that has thousands of people, multitudes flocking to it? Or is the motivation personal? And at its roots, idolatrous. Well, you can be the judge of that based upon the description given here. These are false doctrines and Paul warns not to build upon those. You have the second category here, which are the precious building materials of gold, silver, and precious stones. And uh, Paul very clearly there means the true preaching of the gospel which God uses to call forth his elect and work faith. And remember that Paul has just used uh, that illustration of planting and sowing back in the previous verses here and then says that through that, God causes growth. And he uses that word, that planting and that sowing, that ministry of the word to call people to himself and work faith in the hearts. Same principle, just illustrated with different metaphors here. What do we take from this, though? This admonition uh, to be careful how we build following the divine standards and using a divinely approved raw materials to build the building. Well, I think it warns us this morning to not sacrifice principle in order for us to have success. In other words, the things that we do and the way that we do it is what's important. And you know, sometimes uh, that's a struggle for the church. It could be out of um, a human desire simply to grow. I think as secular secular humanism uh, grows in its influence, and as the church begins to shrink, as it already is in North America, there's going to be a greater and greater motivation and desire on the part of the church to have bigger churches so that we'll feel some significance and some sense of safety from the encroachments of the world. So we have to watch out for that. But I don't think it's just about growth. I think it's also about experience. What I mean by that is, again, I come back to this illustration of it just being so uh, normal looking. So unadorned, so unspectacular that uh, there is something within us that motivates us to at times replace 
uh, the precious building materials of gold, silver, and precious stone with the wood, hay, straw, and stubble because sometimes they look more valuable than the precious stones that Paul speaks of here in the first part of his metaphor. You know, sometimes there is within us a deep desire for an experience which makes us feel That in part is motivated because maybe we've had a bad week. We've experienced disappointments. Maybe because our relationships are strained beyond our capacity and strength to hold them together. Maybe it's because we've been subjected to great and enormous spiritual trials which have tried us spiritually beyond what we feel capable of hanging on to our faith anymore. And what we want is just something to hang on to. And so we come to church and we have its plain liturgy, its old-fashioned songs and a long expositional doctrinal sermon and then the sacraments. Which, if we're honest about it, most of the time doesn't make us feel anything. And so we think, well, maybe the key to Accessing that great experience, which make us feel something, is to pursue the kinds of things that thrill us. To have a kind of worship which makes sense to us because it does something to us. And so we compromise divine standards for building. I remind you uh, this morning, people of God, that these are the means that God has appointed, first of all. And second of all, these are the means that Christ uses to mediate His grace. And thirdly, growing spiritually through the use of these means is an awful lot like how we experience physical growth in this sense. But for the most part, we don't feel it. We get so used to how we look in the mirror. Think about it. We get so used to how we look in the mirror. Day after day, whether it's putting on the makeup or shaving, that we get used to how we look there. And we don't sense that we're growing. We don't sense that we're changing all that much until uh, we pull out a stack of photographs one day and we uh, look at that and then we look at our own reflection in the mirror and we realize that we've grown a lot. We've changed a lot. Maybe we have more gray hairs. Maybe we're a little bit uh, wider around the midsection. Maybe our faces have grown a little bit. Maybe. And many things have changed. And so we all of a sudden realize that something's been going on all this time, but it's been imperceptible to us. And that's very often the way spiritual growth uh, transpires. It's that, that week in and week out meeting with God, that week in and week out being subservient to it, obedient to divine principles. It's that week in and week out conducting worship and, and experiencing and making use of the means of grace that God gradually uh, and imperceptibly over time uses to strengthen us spiritually. So this morning I admonish us if we feel that inner gnawing of desiring an experience which would seem to uh, confirm us in our faith. I remind us this morning that these are the means that God has appointed. 
that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, exhorts the church to use only those materials that God has prescribed and appointed for the building of his temple, which is the church. Well, finally, we see uh, here how Paul uh, reinforces this admonition to be careful how we build. Thirdly, upon the warning that one day the work of the workmen will be evaluated and judged. Look at verse 13, where just after Paul talks about using these precious stones to build on the foundation, he goes on to say, each man's work will become evident. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. Fire will test the quality of each man's work. You see here, Paul warns the workers. Paul warns the ministers. He says, one day when Jesus Christ returns, and He's going to come back again, there's absolutely no doubt about it. He says, He will come, and that day of His coming will be revealed with fire. It's another image of distress and uh, of the holiness and the frightfulness of His coming. And he says, on that day, when Christ returns, in this glorious display of power and holiness, that something's going to happen. He's going to evaluate the work of all of the workers who have been a part of constructing this temple, the church. He says, on that day, there will be reward for those who have been faithful, And there will be punishment for those who have not followed God's prescriptions. Verse 14, he talks about the reward. He says, if any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. Or to infer from the the whole flow of the context that the reason why the work remains is not because of the faithfulness of the people who he's worked on, but because the the pastor has used the divinely appointed uh, means and materials. And there will be a reward. And we don't know exactly what that reward is. Repeatedly throughout Paul's letters, you find this uh, reference to a crown that Paul speaks of. That the people of God very often are his crown when Jesus Christ returns. In other words, uh, their steadfastness, their commitment to Jesus Christ, the fact that uh, through him and his proclamation, God has worked faith in their hearts, and then he has preserved them in the faith. Uh, Paul rejoices in the fact that those elect people will show up on the last day as in the category of disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. And refers to that as being his crown. What else that means beyond that? We have absolutely no idea because Paul never really expounds on it beyond that. But he says that there is a reward here in verse 14. There's a reward for faithful service. But then in verse 15, he brings uh, this warning. He says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved as through fire. It says he will suffer loss. Whatever it is that he's accomplished, or he thinks he has accomplished, it's subject to loss. I was thinking about this in connection with the fires that were blazing last fall. In fact, just right around this building here. I'll never forget that picture of uh, the residents of the mobile home park up in Silmar who were uh, granted access to go back to uh, their homes after the fires were done burning. 
really a heart-wrenching scene because they returned to uh, this park where 484 homes were burnt down. And as the camera panned out, what you saw is as far as the eye could see, or as far as the camera could see, was nothing but twisted steel and scraps of old sign and burned out car frames and endless debris scattered over a scorched earth. And interviews with uh, these poor people who were just combing over the remains, looking for anything that had some sort of a sentimental value to them. Maybe an old picture frame. Maybe an old toy. Just anything they could get their hands on which gave them a sense of connection with this place that had such value to them. You see, just in a moment of time, everything that they had worked for was gone. It was reduced to rubble and ashes. All of the memories... All of the photos which were stored in those boxes in the closet. All of their possessions. All of their equity. It was in ashes. While they had it, it really seemed to be of great value. You know, Paul uses that image here to describe what would happen to the church. All of the labor and the work that has gone into building up a building. And he says, it's not how it appears here on earth. What matters is how it appears in divine perspective. And he says, you know, you can have something that's apparently successful. You could have a large church with a beautiful structure. You could have services from Saturday evening until Sunday night. Service after service. All of them jam-packed with all kinds of people. With all kinds of stories of spiritual experiences. And at the end of the day, if that has not been built according to divine standards, it doesn't matter how earthly successful it appears, Paul says, in a moment, in the returning of the Son of God in glory and power, it will appear like dust and ashes. Just like those homes that were burned to the ground. It doesn't matter how successful it looks. From a human perspective, what matters is whether it's been built according to divine standards and the materials that have been used are divinely authorized materials. And Paul says, the matter of fact here, the man's work will be burned if it's been done in unfaithfulness. But even more soberingly, he says in verse 17, if anyone destroys the temple, God will destroy him. Apparently there are some deviations from the church and some motivations which may be uh, God glorifying, even though they're done in the wrong way, that somehow God looks at me and says, well, the man himself will not be burned up, but all the work that he's put into it will be reduced to dust and ashes and rubble. But there's another kind of person who uses all of the wrong materials with all of this, the wrong self-seeking motivations. And here is the sobering warning and admonition of verse 17. That man and his work will be destroyed. That means subject to eternal judgment and condemnation. Because of great disobedience to God's word. And guess what, people of God? All of that work was supposedly done 
in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not just enough to throw around slogans. What's required of God by God is that the attitudes, the dispositions, the materials and the process all line up and are all based upon God's word, all prescribed by God, and all for the glory of God. If that does not happen, if there is that, not that coordination of activity, disposition, attitudes, goals, and following divine prescriptions, Paul says God is deadly serious about what the consequences will be. Kind of a sobering passage. Be careful how you build. What do we take from it this morning? We wind our way down to conclusion this morning. I'm going to suggest that there are at least three applications of this. And the very first one is that those who are called to be ministers have to be very careful with how they pursue their calling. In fact, even beyond that, I would say the people who uh, aspire to the ministry or to the work of the ministry need to be very careful in how they aspire and what they wish for. James says in James chapter 3, he says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that such will incur a stricter judgment. You know, when I read that passage, it, it absolutely puzzles me why so often in the church there are so many people who are clamoring to be teachers. Oh, they just want to be involved. They believe that they have some contribution that they need to make. And so they're the first ones to line up to teach Bible studies and Sunday school classes because uh, it, is, it is to them an indication and a token and an illustration of just how much they want to be involved and how much they are deeply uh, devoted and committed to the Lord. And yet James says here, let not many of you become teachers. And the reason why is because you're under a stricter principle of judgment than those who are not. C.H. Spurgeon once said that he gave this counsel and advice to every person who came to his college and said that they wanted to study and prepare to become ministers. He said, if there's anything else you can do in life, you better go do it. I often joke that the reason why I'm in the ministry today is because God put a gun to my head and he said, you're going to go be a minister. Because this is the last thing in the world I want to be. I'll guarantee you that. I've told you the story before that my wife and I went on our honeymoon and both of us are pastor's kids. We both rejoiced in the absolute assurance that we would never end up in the position that we are in today because we both were convinced that we had absolutely no desire and no place to be in ministry in the church. God put us here. You know, the ministry is a very dangerous occupation. And Paul gives the admonition to ministers here to be very careful how they build, very careful in the kinds of ways that they build this church, and the kinds of materials they use, and the kinds of aims and attitudes and dispositions they have, because if they're not all about Christ, they're dead wrong. And they're in a very spiritually dangerous position. The second principle that I see that emerges from this passage here is this, that ministerial labor has an eternal impact. Again, I have a terribly difficult time getting my arms around this, and when I think about it, it's more and more sobering as I think about it. But the fact that what we're doing right here, this morning, as we expound this word, as we gather together here to worship God, 
Everything that we are doing here in this apparently mundane moment has an eternal impact, not only for you, but for me. It seems incredible sometimes that the mere exposition of the Word of God has an eternal impact on everyone who hears it. For some, it will harden them in their attitudes and in their rebellion and their hatefulness of Jesus Christ. And the more that people sit under the Word of God who are not regenerate, the more difficult it becomes as they uh, day in and day out reject that truth. So often what God does is uses that Word to harden them in their hearts against truth. It's dangerous. And yet, on the other hand, God graciously uses His Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, as Christ has proclaimed, to call His elect unto Him and to reinforce and strengthen His people in the faith. Marvelous what happens here in this very unadorned, very plain, very simple service. Eternal impact is being gained. The third thing that I see here in this passage as we wind our way to conclusion is that it's essential to do things as Paul prescribes. But we must understand why it's essential to do things as Paul prescribes. And the reason why it's essential to do things as Paul prescribes is because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The ministry is strictly regulated. The materials are only those that can be used or of divine appointing because everything that we do here at church is about Jesus Christ. And the reason why it's all about Jesus is because there's only one way to be connected to Christ and to be fitted together as a bunch of living stones who form a dwelling place of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's through the ministry of the Word and the ministry of the means of grace. Because that's the only way to access Jesus Christ. And that's the reason why it won't do to use a wood and and hay and stubble because those things for all the appearances of spirituality, for all the the apparent appearances of, of spirituality and religiosity, at the end of the day, don't do this one fundamentally, critically, eternally important thing, and that is unite you to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of the temple, around whom all of us as living stones are being built up for a dwelling place of Christ. So you could have a Christless church with all kinds of apparently entertaining, experiential, religious kinds of ceremonies and services that really make you feel so that you walk out of that door and you go back home that day, you can say to yourself, I had a divine connection today. I had something that was spiritually significant today. I felt something in the depths of my being and yet you would never have experienced Christ, which is the key. Because Christ is only mediated through the preaching of His Word and through the ministry of the means of grace. So you can use all the false means and methods and materials that you'd like. And you may have the biggest building in town. You may have a lot of people. You may look really cool. And you may have a really slick media package and presentation. But you miss this one thing, which means everything. Christ. People of God, I want you to be assured this morning that as you sit under uh, the worship of this church, there's one thing that you have a right to assurance to. 
based upon the word of God, you have a right to assurance that as you sit under the means of grace, that you're receiving Christ. And that you're being built up in Christ. And that you're being fitted together with Christ. And around Christ, all of these other uh, children of God. And you're being fit into something which is significant. Which has value beyond which we can even conceive. And that is that you're being shaped into a dwelling place of God. Because the building is being conducted according to the prescription of God's Word. See, it matters. It matters. That we do things right. It matters. It's not just being pharisaical. It's not just having a rule book mentality towards religion. It matters because this is how Christ comes. And this is how Christ is acquired. And this is how Christ is accessed. His appointed ways. And when we do that, there are deep spiritual blessings for us. People of God, we find reinforcement for this message in a very peculiar and unsuspecting place, in a nursery rhyme about three little pigs. It matters how you build. It matters how you build. Not just for today, but for eternity. It matters how you build. And so Paul leaves us with this powerful and searching admonition. Be careful. Be careful. careful how you build. For don't you know, you are a temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Let's pray.